We come this morning to Joshua chapter 7. It's a grim uh, and a brutal story of Israel's defeated AI and its very stark aftermath. I'm sure as the text was read this morning, if you may have felt some shock, maybe even some outrage, or at the very least some perplexity in the manner in which God deals with this situation. So here I want to remind you of what we looked at last week, the nature of Israel's total holy war in the land. I'm not going to rehearse that here, but you may want to revisit that or grab that sermon if you can, because you can't understand this text and much of the rest of the book of Joshua. You can't understand the severity of what goes on here without understanding the nature of the holy war in the land. We'll make three points here this morning, though. Three points. The defeat, the defeated AI, that's in verses 1 through 9. The sin in verses 10 through 12. And then wrath and restoration, verses 13 through 26. Wrath and restoration. So it's the defeat, the sin, and wrath, and restoration. So first, the defeat, the defeated Ai. And at the beginning of Joshua chapter 7, in the first verse, the text tells us, it tells the reader, the reason for the defeat. Namely, that Israel was not faithful in regard to the devoted things, that is, the things that are under the ban of holy war. Achan took some of them, meaning he took some of them at the, at the Battle of Jericho, which had just proceeded. And thus, the text says, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. We'll return to this later. But no one but us readers knows this at this point. All Israel knows is they just had a miraculous victory at Jericho. They're on a high. Joshua sends spies to Ai, just a couple miles east of Bethel. They come back with this overconfident report. You don't have to send the whole army. A couple thousand men will do it. There's only a few people there. So Joshua sends 3,000 troops. Apparently Joshua doesn't even go to the battle himself. And the text tells us they're routed at Ai. 36 are killed. The rest flee. And we're told that at this, the hearts melted. The hearts of the people of Israel melted in fear. And they became like water. Those words should sound familiar. Those are the words that Rahab earlier said characterized the hearts of the inhabitants of Canaan. The hearts of Canaan were, were trembling in fear and melting like water. And the point now is that the Israelites are now reacting like Canaanites. And so what happens next in the text, beginning in verses 6, is that Joshua, who's surely in shock, he does not know why this happened. We know as readers, but he doesn't know. He has no idea why they lost. He goes into mourning. And he tears his clothes and he falls down before the ark which also apparently wasn't sent up to battle. Joshua didn't go to the battle. The ark didn't go to the battle. 
And he remains there in front of the ark till evening. And then he prays a prayer, which is really a, like a lot of our praying when things go wrong. It's a very human prayer. It's also a, quite a mixed bag. He starts by questioning God, asking God, why did you even bring the people across the Jordan to allow these Amorites, meaning the Canaanites, to destroy them? If only, he says. Ah, uh, if only. Who hasn't prayed a lot of if only prayers when things unravel? If only this hadn't happened. If only I had done that. If only he or she wasn't this way. If only, he says, if only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. It's a lot like Israel's complaints in the wilderness, right? If only we could go back to Egypt. Always glamorizing the past and overcritical in judgment of the present. It's quite, it's quite a bit of nostalgia, actually. So imagine this. This is the great Joshua. He's been addressed by God himself and promised God's presence. He's been promised the land. He's led this miraculous crossing of the Jordan. He's been met by the commander of the army of the lords of hosts. He's conquered Jericho. And at the first setback, he sinks into despair and fear and starts mimicking the unbelieving Canaanites and the generation which died in the wilderness. This is he who was charged to be strong and very courageous. But it turns out that he is still very much like you and I. He's very much like one of us. And he shows it in this prayer. So flushed with victory, we're strong and confident. Something goes wrong. And suddenly the very goodness of God and His purposes are called into question by us. That it doesn't take a lot. Frail and fickle things we human beings are. And very easily derailed. One setback. And we can think that the whole cosmos is whirling outside of God's control. I suppose many of us may have been tempted to this on Friday. One setback and somehow the universe is unhinged from God's sovereign order. That's how Joshua prays here. And he knows he's crossed the line. He knows that, that there's something de defective about the piety of this prayer. But it's a good thing that God receives our prayers in mercy in Jesus Christ. If he were to grade our prayers in a, on a strict fashion, our prayers would not pass the grade. So Joshua, in the middle of his prayer, he says, pardon your servant, Lord. He has to ask forgiveness for this prayer. He says, what can I say? Now that Israel's been routed by its enemies... 
It's as if the ancient centuries-long covenant promises had vanished with one defeat. He goes on, he says, the Canaanites, and here, here Joshua is being a bit of a drama queen. This, this is overdramatic unbelief. He says, the Canaanites will surround us and wipe our name out from the earth. I heard some of that on Friday too. The Canaanites are going to surround us and they're going to wipe our name out from the earth. We always overestimate the danger and underestimate the Lord of tragedies and defeats. And so, at this point, Joshua makes an about face. And he redeems this bit of mangled praying. It's not about Israel's name, he says, but it's about the name and the honor and the renown of the Lord. What will you do for your name? Your great name. Finally, after meandering around, Joshua considers the glory the sovereign, unthwartable purposes of God. But just like us in our confusion, it takes him a long time to get there in the prayer. Oh yeah, at the end of the prayer. Oh yeah, what are you going to do about your name? And because of God's great name, Israel's future in the land is in fact secure. It's in fact secure. Now, I mean, I may, I may be being a little bit hard on Joshua, but we can learn a couple things from his prayer here, too, at least. The first is the fact that at least his response, his response to tragedy and to setbacks is to pray, to mourn, to cry out to God. That's a good thing, and he teaches us that here. And he's not slow about that. He's quick to pray. We're often slow. We like to moan and complain and turn over all the options in our head and go over the scenarios and contrive possible responses to the situation and then perhaps, as a last resort, pray. Second thing is, Joshua ends up in the right place. Right? Prayer is an appeal to God to hallow his own name in the midst of whatever darkness and anguish and perplexity we are in. That's the heart of it. And so that's a question, I think, for us. Have, have we prayed for that? For God's great name to be hallowed? In whatever seemingly hopeless situations exist in our lives. Intractable situations. And this is the very beginning. It is not the end. It's the very beginning of the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be Thy name. This is how we pray in the face of setbacks. Because this is where you can be assured that God listens and acts. And this means our happiness finally has to be found in God's name being hallowed. But we forget this. We think that our happiness is found in us getting the things we want or changing the situations that need to be changed or adjusting the people who need to be adjusted. So that's the defeat. 
Israel's defeated. The second point's the sin. In verse 10, the Lord rebukes Joshua and says, Stand up. What are you doing down on your face? He's not impressed with the prayer. There are times when prayer can be a false substitute for action. And God says to Joshua, enough, enough. Be quiet, get up. And one of these times is when sin needs to be dealt with. Prayer can never substitute for repentance. Of course, Joshua didn't know anything about this, but the Lord now informs him. In verse 11, he says, Israel has sinned. Now, before the text, or before we go on to explore this, I want to see something here that we'll call corporate solidarity in sin, or the public nature of sin, or something like that. Together, corporate togetherness in sin. And that is that the sin here of one man is charged against the whole nation. And this is because God sees Israel as a corporate body. He sees them as a covenantal unit, not as a loose collection of individuals. Americans see everything as a loose collection of individuals. The family, the church, the state, everything's just a bundle of sticks. That's just not the way God views institutions or his people. Look back at verse 1, if you will. It says there, back at verse 1, the Israelites, the Israelites were unfaithful with the devoted things. But it was specifically Achan who took some of them. Nevertheless, the end of verse 1 says, the Lord's anger burned against Israel. It was this violation of the ban of holy war. You can't touch the spoils in the case of In the case of Jericho, later God actually lifts that particular provision. But in the case of Jericho, no spoils could be taken. It's this violation which caused Israel's defeat at Ai. There's often some confusion here among commentators. They point out Joshua's overconfidence. They point out that they didn't pray before the battle. They point out that Joshua didn't even go up to the battle that the ark wasn't sent to the battle? Well, look, these may be secondary causes, but the text is silent about them. Verse 1 makes it clear why Israel lost to Ai. They didn't lose because Joshua was overconfident or somebody didn't pray enough or this didn't happen or that didn't happen. They lost because at the prior battle of Jericho, Israel, in the person of Achan, sinned by taking the devoted things. And thus they were under the wrath of God corporately before the battle of Ai even began. And thus they lost the battle. And you can see this corporate guilt very vividly if you go back down to verse 11. Israel has sinned. And then you get in the text a series of they's. T-H-E-Y's, or some variation there. They have violated my covenant. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put the devoted things with their possessions. The Israelites can't stand against their enemies. They shall be made liable for destruction. And thus they have been defeated in battle. And they as a nation are under the wrath of God. 
This is, of course, counterintuitive to us. This corporate dimension of sinning. Because we're a covenanted people, there's no such thing as merely private sin. Your sin affects the body of Christ. It affects the others around you. We're social creatures, covenanted creatures, and sin is a poisonous, powerful social force. No one lives or dies and no one sins unto themselves. And so Israel has violated the covenant of holy war because Achan violated it. It would be as if God sent a plague down on this congregation because one of us committed some sin. You can bet as Americans, we would all think that's unfair. So, they violated the covenant of holy war. Everything was to be devoted to destruction. Everything was to be burned as a kind of offering to God. And in taking the spoils, what they've done is they've stolen God's property. Notice then, in the middle of verse 12, they've become liable to destruction. Literally, Israel then has become devoted things. That's what that phrase means. So there's no escaping the ban of holy war inside the Holy Land. If Israel violates the ban, then Israel will be banned. Israel will be devoted to destruction. Notice the end of verse 12. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. God promises or threatens the removal of his presence to preserve his holiness because the land is now defiled. We looked at this last week. He has to preserve his very godness. Israel then has two choices. You can be consecrated to God, set apart to God, or set apart to destruction. And so that's the sin. The third point is wrath and restoration. There is mercy shown here to the nation, even in the midst of wrath. Israel's under this ban, but they can avert it by removing whatever among them caused the violation. And so here I can clarify a little bit. The principle of corporate guilt does not remove unique individual responsibility. Corporate guilt is real, and yet there is unique individual responsibility. And even in this unique individual responsibility, though, we will see the idea of the covenant worked out. And so what we get next in the text is some sort of a process, we don't know how, possibly by lot or some other way, by which the offending party would be isolated. And the sentence in the text, as you heard it read, the sentence is total and harsh and not merely restricted to Achan, to the individual. So look at verse 15. Whoever is caught with the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire along with all that belongs to him. He has violated the covenant of the Lord and done an outrageous thing in Israel. And eventually Achan comes forth and Joshua charges him to give glory and honor to the Lord. Tell me what you've done. Don't hide it from me. Achan makes this full confession. Verse 20. 
He takes personal responsibility. I've sinned against the Lord. This is what I have done. When I saw, he says, and he mentions this beautiful, literally good robe, plus some gold and some silver, I coveted and I took them. Covetousness is at the root of all sin. Because we're desiring creatures by nature. And our desires are disordered. And so we're always desiring the wrong thing, or we're desiring the right thing too much, or the right thing not enough. All of our sin is tied up with covetousness of one sort or another. It's impossible to imagine any sin which does not entail desiring some item more than one desires God. So that every time we break a commandment, we're breaking the tenth commandment. Achan says, I admits, he confesses, I coveted and I took. And notice, his sin here is told in terms, in language, which evokes Adam and Eve's sin which got them expelled from the original Holy Land of Eden. Eve saw. She saw that the tree was good. Good is the same word used for beautiful here in Joshua. Same word. She coveted, she took. Achan too, having seen and coveted and took, is about to be expelled from the holy realm of Canaan, the new Eden. And so Joshua sends messengers to Achan's tent. They find the spoils. They bring them to Joshua and the Israelites. And Joshua and the Israelites take all the spoils. And they spread them out before the Lord at the end of verse 23. And this means here we're returning them to their rightful owner. We're holding nothing back finally. And once the, the perpetrator is identified, the ban is restricted. And the nation as a whole, though it suffered greatly, there's 36 dead men in battle, and there's a defeat, but the nation as a whole is spared destruction. And so they take not only Achan and the spoils, but his sons, his daughters, his cattle, his donkey, his sheep, his tent, and all that he had to the valley of Achor. Achor means, that's a play on Achan's name, and it means... Trouble. The valley of Achor is the valley of trouble. Later, Joshua says to him, You brought trouble on Israel. The Lord will bring trouble on you today at the valley of Achor. So the nation is spared, but the principle of solidarity and guilt is mercilessly carried out. Anything, living or not living, with any Intimate connection to Achan is to be removed because his name and thus his immediate relatives are to be cut off from Israel. Achan is the anti-Rahab. Rahab believed the covenant in the face of holy war and her and her family were spared. Achan breaks the covenant. He and his family are cut off. Very brutal. Israel stones Achan, all the rest, burns them, devoted to destruction. They're given back into the hands of God. 
and a monument of stones is piled over Achan. And the nation, having been purged, the text tells us the fierce anger of the Lord is turned away. So, that's the text. It's less than pleasant to the ears of us moderns. But it does speak concretely and practically in a couple ways, and let me summarize those. Um, First, as mentioned, we can learn from Joshua's prayer to take our anguish and our perplexity to God. And we learn that we must ultimately get to the place where His great name is what matters in our praying. God's great name is what should matter in your praying. Commit the people and the situations that you're praying about to the vindication and the glory and the honor of God's great name. What more than that can you do in prayer? Secondly, in this text, its very severity does this, by the way. It puts the lie to the charge of genocide often made against God in the book of Joshua. And the reason it does that is because Israel itself is subject to the same ban of holy war if they violate the terms as the Canaanites are for their long-standing wickedness in the land. If anything, Israel is treated with more strict justice than the Canaanites are. So if God is unjust to the Canaanites in the book of Joshua, then He's even more unjust to His own people, which is absurd. This is a holy land, and people who violate the terms of holy war are going to be expelled from the holy land, whether they are Israelites or Canaanites. There's nothing ethnic about God's behavior in the book of Joshua. And third... This is one of those texts which forces us to take seriously sin and the good and holy and perfect wrath of God. We're reminded here that sin is never a holy private affair. It has corporate consequences, especially in God's holy realm. There are, as you go through the book of Joshua, there are these monuments erected Uh, usually with stones, to the mighty saving acts of God. They erected one when they crossed the Jordan. But the monument of stones over Achan is a testimony to God's wrath. And we would do well to heed both types of monuments in history because history is littered with both types of monuments. right? Monuments to God's saving mercy and goodness and monuments to his wrath. They're all over the place. Just open your eyes and see them. You need to see both types of monuments. They're in our own land. Wrath is, after all, a divine perfection. Again, we went over this last week, but any God who doesn't get angry at injustice and wickedness and idolatry is not worth worshiping. And this type of wrath is necessary if evil is to be evicted from God's holy realm, from the world. And Jesus' whole mission is incomprehensible without this backdrop of pure, holy, good wrath. 
This is why Jesus takes sin with the seriousness that he does. This is why he can say, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better to go through life lame than to enter hell wholly intact. Sin in your life should be treated like Achan. It should be stoned, executed, and burned with fire. And anything near it or anything intimate to it or anything that leads to it or comes from it should be cut off. The way God treats Achan in this text is the way we should treat the Achans that are wandering around in the, in the desolate places in our own mind and souls. Holy violence is first and foremost to be exercised against our own corruption. And this is why Jesus finally comes under the full fury of the ban of God. Jesus becomes a devoted thing on the cross. He's placed under the ban and the destruction of the wrath of God so that we, the Israel of God, might be delivered from that wrath and inherit the land. In wrath, God remembers mercy. In wrath, God remembers mercy. In the words of the prophet Hosea, God turns the valley of Achor, Hosea says, the valley of trouble, into the door of hope. Amen.